0: Welcome to the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Anne Hawley, and I'll be moderating the Roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow StoryGrid certified editors, Leslie Watts, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. The rest of us then explore different aspects of the story so we can all understand it better. Well, this week, Leslie pitched Thor Ragnarok as a great example of an action story on an epic scale. This 2017 entry in the Marvel Universe canon was directed by Taika Waititi from a screenplay by Eric Pearson, Craig Kyle, and Christopher Yost. The story is based on Thor Marvel Comics by Stan Lee, Larry Lieber, and Jack Kirby. Just a reminder that this is an adult conversation about a fairly grown-up film, and you may hear some adult words. Leslie's going to start us off with the genre and a brief summary of the beginning hook, middle build, and the ending payoff to orient us to the story.
1: Okay, well, I am calling Thor Ragnarok an action epic savior story. And in the beginning hook, Thor is captured by Surtur, but fights him and takes his crown, believing he has forestalled Ragnarok, the doom of Asgard. But when Odin's death releases Hela, the goddess of death, Thor must decide whether to bend the knee or fight. Thor fights, Hela destroys his hammer, and Loki calls for Bifrost transport, giving Hela direct access to Asgard. Thor is transported to the trash planet Sakar. In the middle build, Hela subjugates or kills the people of Asgard while Thor is exiled on Sakaar and must find his way home. But when Hulk destroys the Quinjet Thor was going to use to escape Sakaar, Thor must decide whether to trust Loki to provide security codes for the Grandmaster's party ship or not. Thor trusts Loki, but also anticipates his betrayal, and Thor, Valkyrie, and Banner make it into the Devil's Anus on their way to Asgard. Loki makes it off Sakaar by joining up with Korg and his revolutionaries. In the ending payoff, as the core team of heroes arrives in Asgard, Hela is approaching the cavern where the people of Asgard have sought refuge but when Thor realizes they cannot defeat Hela because she grows stronger the longer she's on Asgard, he must decide whether to sacrifice the place or allow Hela to hunt down the people of Asgard after they've escaped. He remembers that Asgard is the people, not the place, and sends Loki to awaken Surtur by placing his crown in the Eternal Flame. The heroes get a boost from Hulk onto the big ship, Thor is named King of the Asgardians and they head to Earth.
0: Nice job on the summary and getting through saying the devil's anus without giggling yourself into pieces, which I saw all of the cast trying not to do every time they mentioned it in the show. I giggled.
2: I giggled when Leslie said it. I was on mute, so you couldn't hear me, but I was I was doing lots of laughing. So <laughs>
0: Um, I don't think we've talked a whole lot about our nominally three-sentence story summaries. They're really kind of more like six sentences, but we have gotten really good at that. And I just want to remind listeners that we break every story we analyze down this way, and we do that beginning hook, middle build, ending payoff sentence. And those breakdowns are always in the show notes, and they're a huge resource for people. The structure that we use reveals the 15 core scenes, and it strips away almost everything else. So the talent of doing it it really helps us strip our own stories down to the bare bones so we understand their skeletons. And it goes like this. When something happens, a protagonist is launched into action. That's the inciting incident. But when progressive complications arise and come to a turning point, the protagonist must make a choice. That's the crisis. They choose. That's the climax and move on, which is the resolution. Every storyteller should develop this skill. And Leslie, you taught us all how to do it, so thank you for that. So tell us all about action stories on the epic scale.
1: Okay, so I am studying these action stories on the epic scale, but these don't necessarily fall within the action epic subgenre. This one does, but Deep Impact, another film I've pitched for the season, does not. Now, that can be confusing, especially if you're new to the Story Grid universe and just becoming acquainted with all of those action subgenres and plots. What I'm trying to get at is a very specific type of stories, the ones I'm most interested in reading and writing. The global genre is action, but there's more to it than that. And I don't have a concise definition yet. I hope to formulate that this season, but here are some of the elements that these stories have in common. First, there's a large ensemble cast. In other words, teams of heroes and villains with characters from different types of people who represent, for example, different social classes. This is important to me because people aren't homogenous, so characters creating and solving epic problems shouldn't be either. In these stories, the hero and their particular gift Is important, but the hero needs the help of friends and their gifts as well.
3: Hey Leslie, I just have a question. Does a large ensemble cast necessarily indicate an epic story? Like maybe I'm just not understanding epic action stories well enough. I will cop to that completely. But to me, the word epic implies stories like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones or the entire series of Marvel films together. With this film, To me, it feels like it's Thor's story with a great cast of supporting characters or actors. Am I understanding that right?
1: Yes, I agree. Thor's story here is an episode in the much larger story of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I've chosen it because it's a good example of how to begin telling that larger story by focusing on a smaller subset of that greater world. But yes, stories like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones are these stories, but we have to figure out a way in because we can't just start on day one of storytelling tackling those gigantic stories.
0: Also, I just want to add that Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones both are not stories that could be told in two hours.
1: What? What are you saying, man? (laughs) Excellent point. Yes. Another element that these stories have in common is they have epic settings, wide landscapes. The heroes have to negotiate multiple settings and adapt to changing environments. They also have epic stakes. The villain threatens an entire society or world, not just a single character or a small group of characters. Finally, there are plenty of subplots, including internal genres and subordinate external genres or set pieces that implicate other human needs to be met while trying to defeat the villain and survive.
0: You know, those bullet points sound so much like war and society stories that I'm really going to be interested to hear how they're connected.
1: Right. To me, when we add these epic stakes, the team of heroes, we naturally put in elements that feel like war and society, and the line can get blurry quickly. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit below. But one of the things I really want to figure out is how to write these stories well. Writing a simple and straightforward novel is enough of a challenge for most of us. Around the StoryGrid water cooler, we often talk about learning to walk before you run. And that point is well taken. We cannot skimp on the fundamentals just because we want to tell a giant story. I promise you, layers of complexity and pretty prose will not save your story if there's no story underneath it. And yes, there are exceptions. We can cite examples of less than wonderful stories that sell loads of copies. But since you're here, I trust that that's not what you're about. Now, at the same time, and this is kind of my problem, a simple story might not be motivating enough to keep you interested in sticking with it for the long haul. So how do we keep it interesting while we do the blue collar work of learning the craft? Well, I've found lots of different options, but I chose my stories this season based on three different approaches. First, of course, we have Thor Ragnarok. And as I mentioned, it's a story within a much larger story world. You can watch it as a standalone story, but you'll miss out on the rich layer of references to that greater story within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's an episode within that larger story. We have a core problem here. Hela wants to take over Asgard and through it conquer the universe, but there are references to plots that play out within the world, for example, the problem of the Infinity Stones and the difficult relationship that Thor and Loki have. Now, if you envision a story world as large and rich as the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you can start by telling the story of a smaller conflict within that world, and begin setting the stage for those larger conflicts on a larger canvas. I'm also looking at Deep Impact this season. It's a standalone story about a comet that will destroy life on Earth if somebody doesn't do something. Now, if you like big stories, but don't want to create a series or a larger world, you could start with a story to solve a single big problem and explore how the people in different parts of society contribute to the solution. The Return of the King is the third installment in The Lord of the Rings and my third film for season five. And in theory, you could watch it on its own, but it probably won't make a lot of sense. If you already have an epic, linear story in mind, you can break it into parts like Tolkien did with The Lord of the Rings and build those parts out. Now, while I love complexity in these stories, I would never suggest taking a simple story and loading it with extraneous people, places, and things just for the sake of that complexity. That can create a muddled mess. So how do we avoid that? First, I think it helps to understand why we want to tell these stories. What are we trying to explore through these characters and situations? What I realized during my preparation for this season is that I don't really enjoy action stories with a single protagonist hero who saves one or more victims by expressing their individual gift. It's not only about complexity, because I can enjoy a story like Puzzle or A Man Called Uva those mini-plot stories without epic stakes, and generally an intimate setting. My problem with the single-hero action stories is very personal. They suggest it's okay to wait for a hero to come along and for us to offload responsibility to solve those problems. I think the problems we face today are complicated and require all of us to step up, express our individual gifts, and put our shoulders to the wheel. So the takeaway for me here is that the controlling idea for the story I write needs to take all of this into account. And that theme needs to be woven into every scene to tie the events, people, and places together. Second, we need a solid global story that is sturdy enough to hold all the elements without falling apart. Similar to the controlling idea, the story spy needs to be clear enough that the hero can, for example, be exiled to a remote part of the galaxy for the middle build without losing the central thread of the main plot. Now, These two points aren't unique to these stories on an epic scale, but there's a greater danger of losing that central thread and throwing in too many elements simply because they're really cool. So even though I have a personal subjective criteria for the type of story I want to write, I use StoryGrid tools to make sure I'm hitting the mark and telling a great story. So how does Thor Ragnarok measure up? Well, you can find my editor six core questions analysis in the show notes and some other extra notes, because that's always where I start my assessment. But in this episode, I want to focus on my criteria. So I'll start with the cast of characters because it's what I find most interesting here, particularly how the team brings their individual gifts together to solve the big problem. So we have this large ensemble cast, and Thor is the central character. I mean, his name is in the title. But his gift is that he realizes that his power resides within him, not his hammer. And he also realizes that he must give up Asgard, the place, to save the Asgardians. I think this comes out of Thor's need to see the greater context, as Odin explains.
4: Even when you had two eyes, You'll see only half the picture. It's too strong. Without my hammer, I can't. Are you Thor, the god of hammers? Hmm? That hammer was to help you control your power, to focus it. It It's never your source of strength.
1: Now Thor has been really effective at defeating villains so far, but here he has to step up into his role as a leader, which is a more multi-dimensional job. Now, none of this is all that deep and it's pretty on the nose in this story, but it is an example of how we can be clear about what the gift of the protagonist hero is and how it expresses itself but he can't do it alone, of course. Valkyrie is required, and she realizes that she must face Hela again. She cannot hide out on the edge of the universe in oblivion, wasting her gifts. That is a form of damnation. Then we have, of course, Hulk, or Banner, who realizes he has to risk being stuck as Hulk to fight off the Fenris, that gigantic dog that makes a dire wolf look pretty puny. Now, Loki is a really interesting part of this hero team because he's not all in. In fact, he's undermining the effort at times, but he realizes that his survival is best secured by aligning with Thor and his team. His sacrifice is arguably the smallest and his arc is the most shallow, but his willingness to do his part that is to provide leadership for Korg in the band and to summon Surtr to meet Hela, is vital.
2: I love that you pointed this out about Loki. It's really interesting because he starts so low and then he comes up and he does do his part, so it feels like redemption. But yet, what he's doing at the end, it's not really a sacrifice. It's more like his interests are aligning with the interests of others, which is more neutral. So it's kind of strange. And so we'll look at it in just a little bit and we'll contrast it with Banner's arc, which is also interesting.
1: I'm so glad that you brought that up and that you wanted to explore the different characters and their sacrifices because it is really interesting to me. Well, there are a couple of things I want to say about these characters, a group of characters, and what it gives you is that it creates lots of possibilities for conflict. You want to make sure that you're not including characters just for the sake of a large cast. They should have different reactions to the other characters' events and settings within the story. And they have those different reactions because they might have a similar conscious object of desire, that is to save Asgard and save themselves, but they're probably acting for different reasons. And their scene level goals or essential actions are likely to be different as well. Also, the characters clearly have very different relationships with one another, and there's a hierarchy. So they behave one way or use certain tactics when in the presence of certain characters, and they do it differently when in the presence of others. So obviously, Thor behaves differently with Valkyrie and Loki and Heimdall and Hela. Now, like a satisfying ending, characters should behave in predictable but surprising ways. For example, when Thor returns to Asgard with Valkyrie and Banner to face Hela, he has this expression of grim determination on his face. Valkyrie responds with a kind of wonder she never expected to return. Now, we might expect Banner, a human seeing magical Asgard for the first time, to respond with wonder, but he says,
0: That'd be a lot nicer. I mean, not, not that it's not nice, it's just, it's, it's on fire.
1: In part, I think, because of the friendly, ongoing rivalry with Thor. So it makes perfect sense under the circumstances he would say that, though I expected his reaction in his role as human to be different. He reacted as Thor's friend, giving him a hard time. Now, in the show notes, you'll see my discussion of the epic setting and the different places and the kinds of conflict that erupt there. But I don't want to take time for that here. I do want to talk about the stakes and how Hela is not just subjugating and killing citizens of Asgard. Her plan is to use the Bifrost to continue to take over the universe, a project that was delayed by her imprisonment by Odin. And one thing I want to mention, too, about stakes is that it's not enough to make them big. They have to mean something to the protagonist heroes. So if you think about Thor, for him, as a burgeoning leader of his people, he can't let Hela be successful because that would be letting himself down. That would be not being who he thinks he is. And for example, Valkyrie, for her, there's a little bit of revenge tinged with the need to save the people. So it's very personal to them. The final element that I've identified for my criteria for this season is multiple subplots. Now, in this story, mostly we have multiple internal arcs for the different characters. And Kim is going to talk about that. And within the story here, we don't have a lot of external subplots, but it's full of set pieces that serve the same purpose. These are sequences of scenes with a problem or task that the heroes must address before they can get on with the macro plan of defeating the villain and saving the victims. These set pieces add layers of complexity to the main problem faced by the hero. So for example, on Sakaar, Thor must survive the fight with the Grandmaster's champion, who happens to be the Hulk. Then Thor must find a means of escaping the planet, but he also has to build a team. So you can see how these problems add complexity because they take them away from the immediate task of dealing with the bigger macro problem. Now, this is a really fun movie. I enjoyed it a lot. But there are some problems, or I guess I would say there's one particular problem, and then there's a a missed opportunity. And the missed opportunity I see is that I really wanted Thor to come to terms with the fact that his father wasn't an uncomplicated good leader, not the way he thought he was just because his moral line was crossed before Hela's was in terms of conquering the universe, it doesn't mean there isn't a reckoning that should happen. And I feel like the failure to address that, to have Thor tackle that and face it, was a missed opportunity. Now, I also find, you know, in terms of a more micro- issue is that there was really no compelling reason for Hulk to stop attacking Surtur at the end.
4: Hulk, stop! Just for once in your life, don't smash! Big monster! Let's
1: go! (sighs) Doesn't really cut it for me. Why does that work then and there? It seems inconsistent with Hulk's behavior and temperament. So overall, I really enjoyed Thor Ragnarok and feel like it's a really great example of a way to take a smaller story within a greater universe as a
0: way to enter and begin telling the larger story. I thought Hela was a really boring cliche of a villain. And I don't like to say that because I do like Kate Blanchett. And in general, I like a villainous arising from the fact that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. That's someone I can empathize with a little. But Hela seemed very shallowly written to me, like, Daddy failed me and I am full of villainous speeches and easy over-the-top violence to make up for it. Um, Other adversaries in the Marvel Universe I think have been a lot more compelling, like Loki and Killmonger in Black Panther. Totally understandable motive. It was almost noble, right? You could relate to him. And he was like mirroring what the main hero T'Challa stood for in that story. And in a way, I felt like a force of nature, a hurricane or a shark or a tsunami would have been almost as worthwhile of a villain. So Valerie, or should I say Valkyrie, what's your take on this big action film?
3: (laughs) Okay, yes, there's a certain amount of Valkyrie in me. I will admit that. (laughs) All right, this season, when I'm not the one pitching the film, I'm studying how we can create characters the audience will have empathy for. And boy, Leslie, did you ever challenge me this week with Thor Ragnarok. I wondered how this would work with action films. Is empathy even necessary? And how it would work with ensemble casts. Is it still the lead we have to have empathy for? Or do we also have to empathize with the supporting cast of characters? The first time I watched this film, honestly, I was sort of meh about it. But this time around, I really wanted to focus and pull out all the lessons from it that I could. Given that it's part of a very lucrative franchise, I expected to unearth storytelling gems that I wasn't able to appreciate before. Well, okay, that didn't happen. Honestly, I found the film just as bland as I did the first time. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't like it. I did laugh at parts, absolutely. But when I look at the film through the very narrow lens of empathy and how I'm able to relate to certain characters, I just couldn't grab on in this film like I have with some others. And that surprised me, given the star power and the acting chops in this cast. The only characters that I connected to at all, honestly, were Bruce Banner you know, when he first appears in the ship, and Odin as he's saying goodbye to his sons. I mean, Anne was just talking about how Kate Blanchett makes a great villain, and she does. I mean, come on, it's Kate Blanchett. But I didn't empathize with the betrayal she felt. I mean, my opinion of her was pretty much the same as what Anne just talked about. Yes, I can see her point, and it's important that villains have a point. But in terms of the betrayal she feels, her father having hung her out to dry... I thought that fell kind of flat. Now, maybe it's because Anthony Hopkins did such a great job as Odin and I connected with him more. I don't know what it was. Loki, yep, he's a bit of fun. But as Thor says, ultimately, he's predictable and he's self-serving. And selfishness is hard to connect with. We don't like to admit that we're selfish, right? The Valkyrie is two-dimensional. She is a stereotype that is emerging in Hollywood films, and one that bugs me to no end, and that is that a quote kick ass woman is a woman who behaves like a man. Scourge is predictable right from the time we meet him in the first scene Now, I know I'm supposed to empathize with the internal dilemma that he's facing, and Carl Urban does a great job with what he's given, but It all starts with the writing. I mean, this is why we don't get into performances here on the podcast or the music and all that kind of stuff, because there's also great music here. Everything starts with the writing. In this case, it's a script. For novelists, it's a novel. And Scourge was written as a stereotype, just like Valkyrie was and Hela was. Not a fully developed character. They're cliches. then, of course, there's Thor. Granted, He is never billed as the sharpest knife in the drawer, right? He is brawn, Loki is brains. But surely he does not need Odin to tell him that his power was never in the hammer and that Asgard is not the physical place, but the people. Surely these are the kinds of things that he could have, and I think should have, been discovering over the course of the film. I've often mentioned that my daughter watches movies with me. And she even passed on this one, I have to say, except I noticed that she showed up for the shirtless Chris Hemsworth scene. And really, I can't blame her because I think that was the best part. <laughs> so all of this made me wonder whether empathy is even necessary in a film that is designed as pure entertainment. Now, I honestly don't have a definitive answer for that yet, because I'm just now realizing that it's a question I should be asking. I'm leaning toward yes. Yes. Empathy is essential, and let me tell you why. I think it's because without empathy, the audience doesn't care about the protagonist and what he's going after. Without building empathy into the story, writers have to rely on something else to keep the audience engaged. In Thor Ragnarok, I think they're favoring star power, Chris Hemsworth's abdominals, special effects, and humor over fundamental storytelling principles. And Leslie commented on this already. We saw this same approach in The Spy Who Dumped Me. Now, are there stories that make a bajillion dollars doing this? Sure. Those are films that have things like star power to rely on. And as novelists, what we have is storytelling principles.
0: And as novelists, we can't interject Led Zeppelin music into our novels either.
3: We can't, although we can use it as background music when we have a real powerful scene we wanna write. Ah, Led Zeppelin, (laughs) Led Zeppelin. Now, as writers, we can use humor. And my hat is sincerely off to any of you who can write humor well, because it's tough. And with comedy, I'm sure as Kim would agree, it's black or white. The joke either works or it doesn't work. And comedians have an audience that they can feed from. Novelists have nothing. We just write it on the page and send it out to the world and wonder if it worked. All of this to say that, As writers, no matter what medium we're working in, we cannot go wrong when we create our art with solid storytelling principles. For my money, that's the foundation, right? That's why I became a certified StoryGrid editor. Adding humor and celebrities and special effects and all those other things will make a strong story even stronger. Now, there was a time in the flagship podcast, the one with Tim and Sean, and Tim asked Sean about empathy and how to create it. And Sean said that the way to do it is through the hero's journey. In Thor Ragnarok, I think the hero's journey is weak, and I think this is the reason I'm having trouble connecting. Now, like I said, it's not that I hate the film, I just can't connect with it, and the point of what I'm doing this week is looking at the film through, like I said, this very narrow lens of empathy. What the hero's journey does is allow the audience to relate to the hero, right? It gets us to root for the hero in his quest for his objects of desire. And it works equally well in a story with an ensemble cast because for all of the stars and the side stories, the film is essentially about Thor defeating Hela to save Asgard. Banner, the Valkyrie, and Loki are allies. Their stories are not of equal weight. And Scourge is a minor antagonist. The whole reason the hero goes on the journey is to grow, to learn, to develop. That's what all the tests and the trials in the middle build are about. That's why there are threshold guardians and enemies. And that's why he has to go into the inner cave, why he gets the objects of desire only to lose it again, and why he has to express his gift. At the end of the story, the hero will be a fully realized version of himself for having gone on the journey. All right, this brings me back to Thor needing to be told that his power was never in his hammer and that Asgard was never about the land or the buildings. The tests that he goes through in the middle build, the set pieces, as Leslie pointed out, these are the things that should have made him realize this on his own. I mean, the audience realizes it. Instead, Thor's just kind of bumbling around. And throughout the film, he is put up against all these smart characters and sort of shown to be lacking. We've got Loki, of course, which follows him through the whole series, Doctor Strange, Bruce Banner... Thor does not call himself the smart Avenger. He calls himself the strongest Avenger, and he's not even that, right? The Hulk is. So Thor's changes in the film are superficial only. His hair gets cut and he loses an eye. And I don't really know what the point is of either one of those. And maybe I just don't understand the Thor lore enough. Like, why did he cut his hair? Is it because Chris Hemsworth was tired of long hair? And yes, an eye patch makes him look more like Odin, but that doesn't make him worthy of the throne or it doesn't make him suddenly kingly because he physically resembles the former king. The fact is, at the end of the film, he's essentially the same guy he was at the beginning. He has brute strength. No question about that. But, you know, he's not too bright. He has to be told the lesson by Odin because he doesn't seem to be able to figure it out on his own. But come on, Thor is not an idiot. I don't think we are in, at any point supposed to believe that Thor is just dumb. There's absolutely no reason he couldn't have realized the truth about himself in Asgard without someone else helping him. So in my opinion, Thor's internal shift doesn't work as well as it should, and I think this is why I couldn't connect with him as a character. I wasn't engaged in his quest for his objects of desire. Internal shifts aren't even required in an action story, but in this case, the filmmakers decided to have one. Thor does have a subconscious need. I just don't think they pulled it off very well. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there because I know Kim has a lot more to say about internal
0: genres. Thanks, Valerie. I enjoyed the movie probably more than you did, but I don't disagree with any of the points that you made, and you've really helped me understand why by the fourth or fifth viewing, I really was beginning to find it kind of flat. Now I'd like to hear from Kim, who I know has some powerful points to make about the internal genres of all of the main supporting characters.
2: First, I want to make a little observation about myself. I realize that when I'm having fun and being entertained, it's really difficult for me to be critical. Now, I've known this for a long time, that I'm incapable of multitasking in any way, but this specific observation is is new insight for me. So what'll happen is it'll be a few days later after the high of the experience has worn down, and then my critical brain will kick in, and I'll see the flaws and be able to pick apart all those details and get to the bottom of it. And this is very likely what Leslie and I experienced on The Spy Who Dumped Me, We had so much fun watching it together, so the flaws, you know, didn't matter, at the time at least. And this is helpful for me to know, and maybe for you do, dear listener, I need to make sure I'm giving myself time between taking in the story and then thinking critically about it. I need a cooling off period, I think. So as Leslie said, in stories of an epic scale, we're going to have a large cast of characters, many of whom are going to play a vital role in the story. In Thor Ragnarok, we have a very fun study of four supporting characters who each go through a positive morality arc. We have Loki, Valkyrie, Banner, and Scourge. And each of these four individuals make a sacrifice of sorts that contributes to Asgard's victory and survival.
4: Hey Kim, are all these characters meant to be offshoot characters as part of the hero's journey framework? It seems to me that, you know, obviously Thor is the main hero, but all these other characters are kind of like things he needs to develop or get better at. D- does that make sense?
2: Well, I didn't see it that way, but you know, it doesn't mean that they aren't. I was looking at the characters through their internal genres, which may be different than their archetypal functions. So, I was looking at Thor as an and again, Valerie and I are going to disagree, shocker, that is an already sophisticated protagonist who went through a lot of maturation already by this point in the story. So his arc is a worldview revelation, and it doesn't require his character. That's like his strength of will and his adherence to his moral code. Those things don't change from the beginning of the story to the end of the story. And it's the supporting characters around him who, to me, need to be more like Thor But your question, it makes me wonder how the internal genre arcs and the archetypes can either work together or maybe against each other. And it may be that the way that they're possibly working against each other is part of what Valerie's feeling about not connecting to the characters and having it just overall not be as satisfying as it could be and has been in previous stories. The four supporting characters that we're going to look at today are all on the morality life value spectrum. So I'm just going to go through it again to brush up our memory. Starting with the most negative value, the negation of the negation, is when selfishness is masked as altruism. And then we go up the scale to selfishness or self-obsession. Sometimes looking at it as self-obsession is more helpful to me in being able to recognize a character's specific selfish behavior. And then we go up the scale a little bit more to self-preservation or self-interest. Again, having both terms I find really helpful. And then we'll go up to the neutral value, which I see as self-interest aligns with the needs of others. So they're still getting their own needs met, but their needs also align with other people's needs and they see that and recognize that and it's all good. So that's very neutral. Then we go up north of neutral to the range of sacrifice. And here, this can break out into three different types and and probably even a lot of wiggle room, a lot of squishy in between these. And so this is what you'll find will really be defined by your specific story that you're looking at. So we go to, you know, putting the needs of one person above the needs of the self, putting the needs of our tribe or our community above the needs of ourself, and then sacrificing self for all of humanity, or in this case, alien races and universe, etc. And I think getting to that level of really having all of humanity and the universe and all of creation, those are the life values at stake. That's really part of what Leslie is saying makes these stories epic. So we're going to want to see at least one character go that far. Now, remember, to qualify, morality protagonists require a substantial amount of sophistication at the outset of the story. This ensures that they know the stakes of their selfishness versus their altruism, and it allows the audience to hold them accountable for those actions. Scourge, Loki, and Valkyrie were all raised on Asgard, and that's an advanced civilization tasked by Odin with the protection of the nine realms. So each of these characters has been mentored and brought up to understand what it means to lay down one's life for others, especially for those who cannot protect themselves. And Banner, of course, as he touts, has seven PhDs and is an active member of the Avengers. And so he, too, understands what it means to sacrifice himself for others. So let's go through these characters' arcs and take a look at how they are similar and how they're different and overall what we can learn about morality arcs so that you can craft your own for your own story. Starting with Scourge, because he's introduced first, he's our character who goes from janitor to executioner, and I see him as having a morality-testing triumph arc. When we first meet him, he is showing off to some women at the Bifrost Gate, and we learn that he previously fought in battle with Thor. So we have an understanding there and some context to understand that he's in Thor's army and we should kind of hold him at that same sort of level of sophistication. Then we find out that he was charged as Loki's informant if Thor were to come back. So these actions, while they are self-serving, they remain mostly passive compared to what happens later. So I'm going to say that he's falling somewhere slightly south of self-interest, but maybe not all the way to selfishness. Allowing yourself to have some nuance within these life values, I think, is helpful because you can imagine if we were plotting these on an actual story grid like Sean did for Silence of the Lambs, there are a lot of points in between the major life value names. And so I think it's just helpful to remember that and not get totally bogged down in the black and white definitions. Then by the end of the beginning hook, we see him kneel before Hella as a man with good survival instincts. So now we see that while this is an act of self-preservation, literally, essentially this is him dropping to selfishness in terms of life values. So then in the middle build, Scourge is going to see what Hella is capable of, and he knows that she's wrong. We can see it on his face. We see that Scourge does have a conscience and that he can and should be held accountable for his actions. Again, making this in that morality spectrum. He sees Hellawake the Dead. Then he takes up the axe, becoming her executioner. And then by the end of the middle build, we'll see him struggle with this follow through of having to execute one of Asgard's citizens. And ultimately, he's saved from having to do that. Then in the ending payoff, when the big battle is happening and (laughs) pretty much everyone's being wiped out because Thor's already had his awesome lightning revelation and he's back kicking ass to Led Zeppelin, that's where we're going to see Scourge. He's going to drop his axe and he's going to get on the ship and hide out with the rest of the Asgardian citizens. Interestingly, this is his lowest point of selfishness. It's when he stops serving Hela and joins the Asgardians on the ship But he isn't doing it for any other reason than to save his own skin. And that is his lowest point. Now, this leads us to his highest point, which is when he brings out Dez and Troy, his guns, and he uses them to save people on the ship. And then he jumps off the ship into the battling forces on the bridge. And then he's able to face down Hela, and ultimately he dies, but his sacrifice allows the Asgardian ship to detach from one of Hela's spears and get away. So it's really crucial that he does this. Now, it's important to note that Scourge is not a naive believer in Hela, thinking that she truly is the savior of Asgard and that she really is fulfilling their ultimate destiny. If that were the case, his arc would be very different. For example, we know that he wants to rise in status. That's made very clear, which is why he's accepted Loki's promotion early on in the story. Now, if he were a less sophisticated character, blinded by ambition, and then duped into serving Hela as her executioner with conviction, only to die in the end, this would feel much more like status tragic. Now, if he believed Hela to be the savior of Asgard and therefore chose to serve her, only to realize the truth and then take new action to stop her, this would be more like worldview maturation. But Scourge is fully aware of who Hella is and what she represents, and he chooses to follow along in order to serve his own interests. There is no true belief or loyalty from him to either side. This is what makes his final actions about recovering his moral code and making that sacrifice complete this testing triumph arc. Scourge is a prime example of why it's essential to understand all three aspects of Friedman's framework for your protagonist, that is, their fortune, their thought, and their character. If not, you risk muddling your arc, which lessens the impact and the satisfaction you're going to have for your reader. Okay, so I wanted to talk about Loki here, who has a sort of morality redemption arc, you know, at least for now, because he is Loki really quickly, we see him in the beginning hook. He's introduced as impersonating Odin. He's faked his death in a previous story, and now he has trapped Odin on Earth so he can impersonate him. This is selfishness masked as altruism, okay? Now, Thor finds out and forces him to help him find Odin, and then when they face Hela, Loki calls for the Bifrost to get them out, which is ultimately what allows Hela to follow them to Asgard. Now, this is him acting out of Pure self-obsession interest. Again, it looks like self-interest, but he's really just not thinking about anyone else, which he's sophisticated enough that he he should be able to do that. In the middle build, he ends up with the Grandmaster. He finds favor there. He tries to convince Thor to give up the fight against Hela, and he even bets against Thor in the fight against the Grandmaster's champion. Then he makes a deal with them to get off the planet together, which again is more neutral. Our self-interests align. I'll help you get off the planet. You help me get off the planet. Yada, yada, yada. But then, of course, he double-crosses Thor when they try to escape, and then he drops back to selfishness. And then he does get off the planet with Korg by the end of the middle build. So here we are at selfishness by the end of the middle build. In the ending payoff, he shows up on the ship with Korg and company to save everyone on Asgard. And he goes to battle against Hela's forces. Now, again, I'm still seeing this as neutral, although it may be slightly north of neutral because of the risk there is to himself. But we know that his self-interest is desire for glory. And this aligns with the needs for others, which is to be rescued from Asgard. So again, even though Loki didn't have to show up with the ship to Asgard, it's still not really a sacrifice because you can see in the way that he arrives. We know exactly what he's doing. Then we do see him fight along Thor and Valkyrie. And this starts to feel more like putting the needs of the tribe above his own. Then when he does go to the vault to get Surtur's crown.
0: With the eternal flame, you are reborn.
2: So he, again, is doing his part, following what Thor has asked him to do. But what's fun about Loki and complicated about his morality is that We see him hesitate by the Tesseract when he's in the vault, which is a key setup for a later Avengers film. And it's a cue that while following Thor's lead and taking risks to save Asgard, he's still never too far from his self-interest. At the very end, we see Loki show up in person rather than as a fake hologram. And he is then present when Thor takes the throne, which we know has been a source of pain and discomfort between the brothers in previous stories. And so here I think we have a nice little brotherly love payoff. So while Loki's arc looks like redemption, because he starts out so low at selfishness masked as altruism, he ultimately doesn't really end much further than neutral. But because he started out so low, we still get an arc there, we still get some range of the life values covered, and there's a nice chunk of life values changed. But it's not quite all the way to sacrifice. And so that's kind of a, a cool way to look at it is as long as you can have your character cover a wide range of the life value, even if they don't reach fully one or the other, it can still feel like an arc. But beware, because if your intent is to create a morality arc, and you don't go high enough at the end, it might feel unsatisfying, especially if Loki were the main protagonist of the story, as opposed to being a side character. So kind of a a cautionary tale there as well. So I'm going to go through Valkyrie and Banner in more detail in the show notes. So check that out. Uh, the only other note I wanted to make about Banner is that he actually starts out the highest on the scale, right? He's, he starts out as hope just within self-interest. But then he ultimately does go all the way up to sacrificing himself for all of humanity. So he's kind of the opposite arc that we see with Loki where We know what it means for him to turn into Hulk at the end. You know, he might never get to be his human self ever again. And that is a huge deal. But because he's sophisticated and he knows what it means, his sacrifice is ultimately the highest sacrifice of the film. But he starts out in a more neutral range. So you can kind of see how both Loki and Banner have a wide range on the life value spectrum. They're just in totally different places on the map there the other thing that I wanted to talk about is Thor's worldview re- revelation arc so all of those notes are going to be in the show note and I'll walk you through his beginning middle and end and how he gets there but there are so many deep internal arcs happening in the story that it's too much for me to cover in one podcast so I encourage you to check out the show notes for this episode and all the other episodes and I just want to take a moment to just say if you guys aren't checking out the show notes you're really missing out because there's so much awesome stuff that that everyone puts in on those show notes and a lot more maybe that than even gets recorded. So I just encourage you to take a look at those. And ultimately, developing the internal landscapes and arcs of your main protagonist and your cast of supporting characters, setting up those beginning life values and their beginning flaws that culminate in these joint payoffs to defeat the villain, it's going to make for a very satisfying experience and really help you solidify that epic action story that you're looking to tell.
0: Well, thank you, Kim. That was a great tour de force. I found this story pretty satisfying, especially the first two or three times that I watched it back voluntarily before the podcast. But I'm beginning to wonder now how much of that satisfaction just came from visiting old friends from the Marvel Universe. I wonder now whether I would have given its flaws as much of a pass if I weren't already a fan of the franchise. And I think these large franchise operations tend to kind of fall back on that. Whereas we as novelists, unless you have a really successful hit series and you can get away with one book where it's just, oh, I love these characters, thank you very much, you probably need to really adhere to all of these story principles. So I've seen this movie about five times now. And I have to say that the structural story flaws didn't start to pall on me until the last viewing. One thing that really struck me about it was the trick of shifting the action to a place that was far removed from the central conflict of the story. Lots of middle builds do begin in a new location. That's really common, especially in external genre stories. But in this case, the new location is also a whole new quest. And it's like, almost acts like a separate story. I was struck by this the first time I saw the movie and continued to be struck by it. In a slightly earlier era, I think that middle build could have stood alone as a complete story in itself. But these days, I think we expect more complexity and nuance in our in our heroes. So I'm tempted to class it almost as a story within a story, kind of a nested story form. Not quite, but it had that feeling to it. And honestly, all of the color and the humor and the really, to me, gripping action scenes were in the middle build, right? At least by this fifth rewatch of mine, I was skipping over the comparatively dull parts back at Asgard with Hela and Scourge it was the color and the humor that made this odd mixture work out for me. So maybe a takeaway for writers is that if you are, like Valerie said this earlier too, if you are capable of injecting both humor and empathy into your action story, your readers might forgive a whole slew of little problems in the story. Jari, it's your turn. You're studying love stories in the genre sense this season, but last week you gave us some good insights into the conventions of stories about paternal love and, There's some solid father-son stuff happening here in Thor Ragnarok. So I wonder what you've got for us today.
4: Well, uh, there's not much love going on in the normal sense of the genre. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to try to look at superhero love, which I think is its own little thing that some people uh, love to throw into superhero movies. But you know, it's really hard to, to incorporate all that stuff. You want to put good dialogue and good story subplots into something, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And you know, in this, there's really not any kind of love subplot other than what you said about paternal love. But I really wanted to share some love about the director. For those of you that don't know him, you're just missing a lot. He was born in New Zealand and he's written and directed, in my opinion, two of the best dark comedy ensemble cast movies out there, Eagle vs. Shark and What We Do in the Shadows. And if you've not seen these two, you really need to check them out. They're both masterclasses in dialogue and dark comedy. And uh, for What We Do in the Shadows, it's a great example of docudrama style, like Best in Show. And if you're a fan of Flight of the Concords, then you will definitely be a fan of this director. A lot of superhero movies have a conventional love story or subplot that follows the love courtship story grid genre pretty closely. Modern superhero movies such as Deadpool and Guardians of the Galaxy follow the conventions and obligatory scenes closely. Both of these movies are great examples of how to lo- use, excuse me, a love story subplot to make the superheroes relatable because I mean they're superheroes, how so you got to have some sort of relation. It also provides some comic relief at times when you need a little break in the action. In Thor Ragnarok, there's not a love subplot and not a lot of love in the room, so to speak. There are some hints of a romance, but it's subtle and not really that upfront. There is some complex family love between Odin, Thor, Loki and Hela. Clearly, they need to hold some sort of space for their family challenges. Maybe they can just kind of hug it out. Yeah, nah. It is sort of implied that Thor kind of has the hots for Valkyrie, but it only comes out in almost throwaway scenes that It's kind of unsatisfying to me. I did some research, and uh, the original screenplay did have a romance between Thor and Valkyrie. It was written, but kind of rewritten. They even rewrote it to have Valkyrie be bisexual based on the comic book relationship with her and Annabelle Riggs. Uh, They even shot a scene with a woman coming out of Valkyrie's room, but they also cut that out. So not much romance in this movie. So what does it mean, superhero love? The typical superhero love trope consists of the emotionally distant knuckle dragon male superhero, typically, who can't share his emotions except for quips about his prowess with the ladies to hide his emotional turmoil with how he can't be vulnerable, the antithesis of our good friend, Mr. Darcy. Think Batman or Peter Quill, Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy. So again, I tried to find a hint of any love subplot because I'm into love plots this season and I came up really empty. Sure, there's some lines. Oh my God, you're a Valkyrie.
3: You know, I used to want to be a Valkyrie when I was younger, until I found out that you're all women. There's nothing wrong with women, of course. I love women. Sometimes a little too much, not in a creepy way. It's just more of a respectful <laughs> appreciation. I think it's great that there is a, an elite force of women warriors. It's about time.
4: Or comment about her hair.
0: Your hair looks nice. I like what you did with it. Change it? Washed it, maybe?
4: her line about how he shouldn't die good luck
3: your majesty don't die you know what i mean
4: it's really thin and the research does indicate that that's not what the director wanted his take on this is a little more humor and not a lot of love so what can we learn about love subplots and action movies from Thor Ragnarok. Well, my take is that if it's a well-written action story, you don't need a love subplot to give the rest in the action. Because a lot of times that's what these things are. All kind of subplots in these action movies, they're for a rest between the action.
2: Well, one aspect of love that I enjoyed in this film and in the other Thor and Avenger films is that brotherly love-hate relationship between Thor and Loki.
0: I love that, too. You know, and sibling rivalry is something that that makes even gods and demigods relatable to us, ordinary mortals who grew up with siblings of our own. i I think that's a really important <laughs> part of empathy in this story,
2: right. And because they're past, it's complicated. They're very different people, but they do have this intimate connection in how well they know one another because they grew up together. And it seems that despite their differences and their choices that they do still love each other and they continue to forgive each other and reconcile. And we see this payoff nicely, I think, when Loki does show up in person at the end rather than that fake hologram. You know, the fact that he is present there when Thor takes the throne. So these kind of relationships that endure despite family members not having the same beliefs or the same morals or goals, to me, those are really great things to see. And it's one thing that I really love about the Thor films and Thor and Loki, their relationship. So I'm glad that that came out.
4: True enough, Kim. So yeah, the fraternal love does add some tension to the plot. And it's nice to see Loki and Thor come together in the end. In terms of paternal love between Odin and all his children, he's like more of an absent father, or I guess I had, according to this movie, when you just look at it this way, which does end up driving the plot in terms of Hela wanting to gain back the power she had before Odin banished her. Okay. So, you know, I think, we can see the complex family dynamic that would be a thin society, domestic sub-sub plot that sort of shows up and how the bonds of family love are challenged and how that can really be a source of tension. So yeah. Okay. There's a little bit of love in this.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're exploring that because by exploring it, you have brought out some of the more interesting aspects of the family domestic plot that was going on. Yeah, so true. I thought it was overall a really fun movie. And Leslie, I just wanted to thank you again for making me watch it one more time because it's not like it was a hardship to watch it. It was really a lot of fun. So to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. This week's question comes to us from another Anne, Anne from the UK, and here is what Anne asks. Scene and sequel seem to be able to manage pace better than the pure Five Commandments scene all stacked into one. There does seem to be a natural break that's crying out when the crisis hits. The grappling process the character goes through, presumably at this crisis point, would connect more with the reader then. If it's stuck right in the middle of a scene, it can slow the whole scene down. In fact, it's come to a point where I wonder why Sean has left sequel out altogether. Sequel helps the reader regroup and it helps the writer develop the goal for the next scene. I'd love to hear more about all of this. Thank you.
2: Hi, Anne. Funnily enough, I actually asked Sean a very similar question at the StoryGrid Love Story Workshop back in 2017. I had been beginning to work with Dwight Swain's scene and sequel model, and it was finally starting to take, you know, semi-shape in my mind. So then hearing Sean talk about the five commandments, and I was trying to pair up the definitions and which correlates to what, and it was just really, really tricky. Are these actually different, or are they just the same thing using different words? I made sure that I asked Sean about it, and first, Sean hadn't heard of Dwight Swain's scene and sequel model, and he just doesn't use it. It's not a matter of leaving it out, it's just that he never considered it, because he was doing his own analysis and finding his own pattern recognition in studying stories. So scene and sequel didn't show up to him in his observations in a way that was useful in the same way that the Five Commandments are useful. Now, I suspect that for Sean, a sequel is more of an implicit reaction to pacing than explicit. So all that said, when I explained it in New York and asked for advice on how to reconcile these two models, Sean said, beware of being too rigid with applying that kind of scene, sequel, scene, sequel pattern. It can be, just become you know, tiresome to the reader, which is precisely why the crisis is at times omitted or inferred in a five commandment scene. It's to combat that tedious and tiresome grappling section that's not always necessary. But when it is necessary, it can be exploited to the degree that it needs to be. Because as you say, there are times when a sequel, that is that more internal taking stock kind of scene is really necessary. But I'd argue that the five C's are likely to exist in both versions, both the scene and the sequel. Also keep in mind that the five commandments exist at every unit of story, not just scenes. They make a stronger model to study and follow overall. So I think rather than thinking of scene and sequel and the five commandments as separate models that are at odds Think of them as explicit tools at your disposal that you can use to craft and revise your story. Because in the end, the goal is to have a story that works. Whatever process you find most useful to get there is the right one, regardless of terminology.
0: And this is my chance to jump in with a plug for my summer stint on the main Story Grid podcast, where I will be a lab rat in what we're calling the Masterwork Experiment. The first of our Masterwork Experiment episodes went live on June 13th, and there are nine more to come. Sean's working hypothesis for the experiment, and this does come back to Anne in the UK's question here, is that by analyzing a Masterwork beat by beat and then replicating those beats in a different setting, a writer can create a fresh and original story. Well, his latest ideas about the beats of story boil down to what we might be calling story beats and transitional beats. And that analysis is almost certainly going to carry us into Dwight Swain's scene and sequel territory. Well, it's going to be my job to build that new story from the exact same beats as the masterwork in public and have it edited by Sean Coyne in public. So the question is, will I write something new and interesting and fresh or just be making a hackneyed copy of the masterwork? It's going to be a fun ride so and in the uk and everybody else i hope you'll check it out if you have a question about the epic level of action stories or any other story principle you can ask it on twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still by going to storygrid.com slash resources clicking on editor roundtable podcast and leaving us a voice message well thank you everybody for a wonderful discussion Jari, Kim, Leslie, and Valerie, you have brought excellent editorial insights into Thor Ragnarok. We hope our analysis has given everyone plenty to think about if you're working on an action story at the epic scale. You'll find links and additional material in the show notes at storygrid.com, as Kim has said, and I urge you to take a look at them. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites also will be found in the show notes. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. Join us next time as Valerie begins her deep dive into the thriller genre with Primal Fear, the 1996 film starring Richard Gere and Edward Norton, based on the novel by William Deal. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? And that's a wrap for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time.